In this episode, I welcome Amber Waite, head at St Albans High School in the UK. In this episode, I explore the distinction between mental health and mental illness support, the changing role of girls-only education, and the importance of creating student self-care and resilience toolkits. You're head of an all-through girls' school. What are the pitfalls of girls' education that you've come across during your time teaching? I think teaching young people is a delight. It's really regardless of who's sitting in front of you. But I do think there are some massive misconceptions about girls' education. And two of my least favorite misconceptions, ones that really irk me, is the idea that girls learn best in an all-girl environment or that girls do better in STEM subjects in an all-girl environment. And the reason I hate those is because it suggests somehow that girls underperform just by virtue of being in the same room as Y chromosome, which is an absolute nonsense. So if young people are given the opportunity to learn and their intellectual curiosity is really sparked, they will thrive regardless of who they're around. One thing that I have noticed, because I've worked in girls' schools, boys' schools, co-ed schools, is that teachers and parents really need regular training because I think it's too common for girls to be rewarded and acknowledged for what teachers might call good behavior, but actually is simple compliance and being non-challenging. Whereas boys are commonly acknowledged and rewarded for being what teachers call confident and engaged, but actually it can be reduced to being arrogant and bullshit. And so we are, as teachers, our unconscious biases often lead us to celebrating traits in girls that don't set them up for success and celebrating traits in boys that set them up to assume success, even when success isn't on the cards. We need to really, really be mindful of that, be conscious of that, because I think that we have a lot to answer for. If there is an environment where girls and boys are in the same lessons in physics or maths, if the boys are really flying and the girls aren't, it's not because girls' brains are different. I think the question is what opportunities are being offered in those classrooms. We do need to challenge school leaders. We need to challenge staff and parent preconceptions and misconceptions, unconscious bias to ensure that we're emphasizing the values that we really pin our schools on rather than just sort of reinforcing unhelpful and, you know, frankly, Victorian stereotypes. Yeah, and you mentioned that the role of a girls' school is changing in the modern world. And it's the first time I've spoken to a head of an all-girls school that's talked in this manner about the way in which you teach. And it's not about the whether you're a Y chromosome or whether or not the girl exists within a boy's environment. Is this a view shared by other girls' school leaders and other girls' schools? Or is this something that you just have found through your own experience? I don't know. I honestly haven't met that many girls' school heads who openly share this, this idea, this notion that there are two types of creatures in this world, girls and boys, and that all girls share the same characteristic and all boys share the same characteristic. The idea that there is a spectrum of personality and there is a spectrum of gender, and it's all just a construct anyway. So I really hate pigeonholing girls, you know, identifying them as all girls behave in this way. That's like saying all blonde people behave in this way. So I think I might be a little bit unusual as head of the girls' school because I truly do not believe that girls learn best in an all-girls environment. And I do not believe that girls' schools are better than co-ed schools or boys' schools or whatever. I do believe 
that young people, whoever they are and however they identify, will flourish in a school where they feel valued and looked after and supported and encouraged. But I also think that every school has a vibe, culture, an environment that's all its own. And it's completely unique to that institution. So here at my school at Stars, our vibe is all about camaraderie, friendship, celebration. It's silly, we're quite silly. They're very clever and they do very well, but never at the expense of losing that silliness and that joy. And there's a real sense here that we're all part of something bigger. They're quite grounded. They know that there's a world out there. And I think that's what the families and the young people at my school enjoy about the school is that environment. It happens that culture has developed in an all-girls school. And I have no doubt that being an all-girls school helped shape that culture. Not all girls' schools have that same culture. So our pupils are thriving in this all-girls environment, but not because it's a girls' school, but rather because they're thriving in the culture that we have and it fits them. We're lucky here in the UK because there are so many varieties and shapes of school that parents and young people really do have a choice in education. So I think that there is a future for girls' schools. There's a future for boys' schools, co-ed schools, specialist colleges, and everything in between, because the more variety there is in educational settings, the more choice people have, the more likely they are to find schools that really suit them where they can thrive. To change the narrative, it feels like it's, it's, we're saying the wrong things. It's a marketing issue because all schools, as you say, are hiding behind that the girls need to be taught separately because they're distracted by the boys. That's the headline. And then everyone buys into the the narrative and go, oh, no, okay, that sounds right. I want them to thrive. I need them to be in an all-girls school. Being in an all-girls school in itself has its own issues. Being amongst girls, I've got two daughters. I know what that's like. I've seen them go through their early teens, come out the other side, but I've got one who's now in the midst of that period between years eight, nine, and 10. You kind of almost despair sometimes. And I wonder whether or not she would have thrived better in a boys' school Or is it just the cohort, the way you teach? There's so many different things you fly around. But I suppose coming back to the question was, how do we change the marketing narrative that girls' schools seem to stand behind? I think it's about challenging. It is about challenge. So as a parent, I think you need to really ask yourself, why am I considering this school? What is it about the school? And I think that for some schools, that is their narrative. Those are the young people that are choosing them. So if you genuinely think that just being in a room with boys is going to keep you down, you would not thrive at this school because you'll be kept down by the girls in the room who have that confidence, that precociousness to push the boundaries. There is a narrative there. I don't agree with it. I think that every parent and child is looking for something. And I think it's really important that they go and visit lots of schools and just find that school where they fit. Whatever that school is selling, As long as what they say they're doing matches how it feels, then that's great. But I think that if every school was selling the same information, the same narrative, that we'd end up with quite a homogenous educational environment, that wouldn't be any good. Yeah, I completely agree, which is why, um, by design, we had four kids at four different schools. It has to fit for the child. And, you know, my two daughters are completely different in so many ways. And, you know, one would not thrive at the other. So we look at then boys' education because, you know, we're seeing a lot of high-profile boys' schools turning into co-ed. It it feels like the boys have kind of given up about being single sex and going, look, the only way to survive, it feels like, is by bringing in the girls because that's what the market wants. But I'm not reading or finding many girls' schools that are going, we need to bring boys in. Why do you think that is? I'm just going to sound really reductive. 
I think there are a couple of reasons that you would completely change the nature of a school. One of them is financial. If you're an independent school, if you're not filling your seats, opening up to co-education from single sex gives you access to 50% of the population. So that's one reason. I think boys' schools, just like I disagree with the narrative around girls' schools where, where girls have to be protected from boys, I think that there is also an unhelpful narrative around boys' schools at the moment in the wake of Me Too and Everyone's Invited. This idea that if you allow boys to be in an institution with only boys, that somehow this toxic masculinity is inculcated in them and you just get these monstrous men at the end of it, these monstrous men who've had the world just at their feet. And that's not true. There are some fantastic boys' schools who turn out the most lovely young people in the world. And I think that a lot of boys, there's been a lot of outside pressure on some of the most, for lack of a better word, elite boys' schools that somehow they owe it to the world to no longer be the model that they were. So pressure on, I mean, I think that there's only a few all boys boarding schools left in the country. They're slowly going co-ed. And I don't know the reasons why, because I'm not part of those strategic decisions at those particular institutions. There's a push for it. There is a push from society to, to change these institutions. But there are loads of all-girls boarding schools, and that same push isn't happening. So, again, I think sometimes we're living in an era of populist knee-jerk reactions, and I do worry that sometimes, I mean, that some of our schools are just facing, you know, existential crises because of outside pressures rather than anything educationally significant. That's just my own idea. I don't know what's actually going on. There are loud voices out there, and sometimes they're not saying the most sensible things. Yeah, agreed. And I, th- I think your, your your comments around the reasons why these are happening are, are absolutely spot on. And I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of that happen. Your school places a huge emphasis on pastoral care for its students. How do we remove the taboo around mental health in girls' schools? Well, I actually think that the taboo around mental health amongst young people in particular is already crumbling, particularly in schools. Young people are really switched on. They are just aware of what's going on. They're really keen to open up and to talk about what we might consider previously taboo subjects. And I think that's amazing. I think it's great that schools are these safe places where young people are encouraged to be open and honest and where they can sort of find helpful and relevant support when they need it and just talk about these things that they're seeing in the media. I do think that one thing that schools absolutely need to do is make sure that their staff are trained in youth mental health first aid. Teaching is a caring profession and people who go into this profession for the most part go into it because they genuinely like being around young people and and they want to make a difference in the lives of the people they teach. And sometimes that can manifest itself as them just wanting to fix what they see as a problem that's causing distress. The thing is, people aren't broken and they don't need fixing, but they need understanding and care and support. And it needs to be proper and relevant and appropriate. Young people need to have these tools to help them navigate their emotions and their own mental health ups and downs. They need to know at what point they need to turn to external help when things are disproportionate and when they can no longer cope on their own and they need to be listened to and validated. And staff need to understand that I'm trained as a chemist. I've also trained in youth mental health first aid. So I can certainly listen to someone and tell them that everything that they're feeling is, it's important and, and I can validate them, but I can't cure them and I can't diagnose them. 
And I think that more staff need to have that understanding that it's okay to not fix every problem that comes up and that we're not mental health professionals. I think there's a lot of training and retraining that needs to happen with parents. And and it's making parents particularly aware too, to understand the signs. You know, I mentioned my youngest daughter, you know, the last two years, out of anyone in my family, she found it the hardest. And, you know, when I look at the mental health that's going around her, her kind of year group, but particularly what she suffered with, a lot of the stuff we were unaware because girls are very good at hiding it. And also that's also probably the, the state of a busy parent. We almost don't spot it because maybe we choose not to because we kind of judge it on, on a fleeting moment that we might have because guess what? They don't want to spend time with us. And so you judge them at mealtimes, you judge them everywhere else. And then they go to their rooms and the darkness happens. We've been through some really horrific pieces, but it was trained mental health people that helped navigate it. And it was in the schools too. And I completely support you. I think more needs to be done. And particularly on the back of the last two years, I mean, have you seen an increase in the mental health support that you've had to give to your girls the last two years because of being locked down when they needed to get out there and and have these relationships? Absolutely. And we've put in a lot of extra support and we're keeping that extra support too. Because what we've noticed is we need much more early intervention. You know, before things reach crisis point, you want to get them at the earliest stages to prevent a normal down that everyone has from becoming a mental health illness, a mental illness or or a mental health crisis. The other thing is, you know, for two years, all of society has been left alone with its own thoughts. And we've lost that socializing and all of those normal, you know, that's part of a mental health toolkit is going and playing, having fun, having a conversation, just getting out of your own head. And so COVID has been really terrible for that. Also, teenagers are hard to live with. We've had, because of the way that their brains develop, their biochemistry makes it difficult. And and they're naturally social people because of their brain chemistry. So the fact that they have been locked up with their parents for two years, that has created a lot of tension and a lot of issues that we've seen. And also, they carry their burden of their parents' mental health, too. Just like most families, we carry each other. And so we've been seeing a lot of children coming back with heightened anxiety and issues that are linked to how their parents are coping. So I think that being in school, the longer they're in school and are interrupted, the more things will go back to pre-pandemic levels. But I think all of that extra support we're putting in place will stay in place and it will only benefit them. I hope you're enjoying the Inspiring Schools podcast. We're always on the hunt for guests with vision and a desire to share them. If you'd like to be involved or know of someone with great ideas at a school near you, please drop me an email to podcast at interactiveschools.com and my team will be in touch. How do we distinguish between young people's mental health and young people's mental illness? I think it's really important because the flip side of the good about the taboos coming down and people talking about mental health, the flip side is people are always talking about mental health. And there's a real risk of normalizing the idea that everyone will end up with a mental illness because that's simply not true. I mean, the statistics are shocking. Quite a lot of people will have a diagnosable mental health issue at some point during their life, but it's not a normalized thing. And so I think that there's a really, a real risk that young people will lose sight of the fact that life has normal ebbs and flows, that there are ups and downs that we all navigate. Everyone has mental health. 
And just like your physical health, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's poorly. Sometimes it's really poorly and you need outside medical intervention, just like with mental health. What I worry about is being too clinical and making everything about diagnosing, about naming disorders. But sometimes it's okay just to feel low for no reason. We all do. And to understand that that's normal, that's part of the normal spectrum of human emotion and human mental health. And I think that we need to work harder to educate young people to recognize when things are beyond their own coping mechanisms and when they're not. In order to do that, they have to have coping mechanisms. And I think that sometimes, I think schools are on the back foot in preparing young people to actually build up their resilience toolkit so that they can manage when they're feeling down or if they're feeling anxious or periods of time when there's a lot going on and they're struggling to balance their various commitments. Giving them the tools to manage is much better than just snow plowing all of the barriers because this will happen for the rest of their lives. They will have ups and downs and uh, periods of anxiety and periods of low anxiety. And so I think it is important that we, we don't constantly work to name things and diagnose things and take the agency away from the young people themselves. Simone Biles and Adele are two public figures who have taken mental health breaks recently. What do you make of this? I think it's fantastic that people are using social media as a platform to say, do you know it? This is overwhelming. And it is typically their mental health breaks, both Adele and Simone Biles, their mental health breaks were about social media. And I think that's a great message to send to young people that when you recognize that social media is is one of the causes of why you're feeling the way you're feeling and you're not enjoying it, step away. My concern is that what young people will see is just Instagram going blank. So yes, Simone Biles had three weeks mental health break, which is fantastic for her. But what young people don't see is that when she's not on social media, she's still training, she's still working, she's still building her own resilience toolkit and managing herself as was Adele. My worry is that I'm hearing more and more young people saying things like, I'm just having a mental health day, and you just lose them for a day. You know, in some cases, that's absolutely fine. We have to look after ourselves, and self-care is really, really important. But this idea that anytime things get a bit much, that you can just exit your responsibilities and exit commitments without thinking about consequences, I don't think that's healthy, and I don't think that's setting them up to be able to navigate adult life at all. So I do think that there are good and bad, but I think that it's worth talking about at schools. How do you build self-care into your normal routine? And at what point do you need to sort of slough off expectations and slough off commitments? At what point do you just say, right, this is going to be a difficult week. I'm going to get through it. And then I'm going to have a big break to celebrate. Yeah. And that requires the support of parents. And I do feel that parents are absent more and more nowadays and you know we look at role modeling it's one thing the girls going into your school having great mental health support awareness they understand about self-care I love the resilience toolkits all these things you talk about are all brilliant and then they go home and they are caught with it and I feel the same myself and I feel myself sometimes getting so addicted and so caught up with this that like a I'm not present my kids kind of look at me and go dad you're not present and I come out of it with my own kind of mental health Peace going, I don't feel great. Why did I do that? So should we actually be investing a lot more time in the parent education and saying it's your responsibility, your absence, you've got to role model good behavior and put down some guidelines 
that maybe because we almost need educating ourselves because we've kind of given up a little bit. That's quite a generic thing. But I just see it and speaking to other friends is that we all recognize that we are on our phones too much. And, you know, we have our own social media demons and, you know, answering emails out of hours and just thinking we have to be on all the time. Are you doing anything at your school to support the parents? We do a lot of parent seminars and we do talk to parents about it. At the end of the day, you you model the behavior you expect to see. You know, I think that if you do one thing and expect your child to do something completely different, you're living on a different planet. What I find frustrating is when you get parents who say things like, well, she's on her phone at two in the morning. And my first response is, why does she have her phone in her bedroom? Well, I can't take it off of her. Really? Can you not? Who pays the phone bill? Who bought the phone? There is a, an eroding of the parent-child relationship, which naturally happens anyway as they get older. But sometimes I think parents are a little bit afraid to maintain a hard barrier, a hard boundary. Boundaries are difficult and it can be a real challenge. We do talk about that a lot. The other thing is, is parents need to realize, in fact, all people, teachers, parents, and young people themselves need to realize that good mental health is not being constantly happy. You know, that's sort of Stepford Wives territory. No one is constantly happy. And there is a real sense sometimes that the minute you are not over the moon, that something is wrong with you. I think that that's something that we need to talk more about, that it's okay to feel rubbish sometimes. That's part of life. And if you are happy all the time, that's a little bit of an odd, that's an oddity. But then that's the world that they kind of look at all the time on the devices. Everything looks perfect. Well, and what a great life, you know. You're right. We just need to also recognize that. The other piece that I kind of talk about and I push with schools and trying to model it myself with my own kids is boredom. Kids don't know how to be bored because there's always something. You know, you look at there's 24-7 access to stuff. And it's always on a device, right? I can suddenly, there must be 20 new Netflix series coming out every single week. They are absolutely overwhelming everybody to go, you're never, ever going to leave this box. And so, you know, when I try and kick my son outside, go just on the trampoline, go through the pool, you know, and he goes out for, and he just goes on board because he has this draw that I want to be back inside playing a game or doing something with a digital device. How do we instill and teach boredom? Because that's a resilience piece. It is, and also to challenge what it means to be bored. I mean, one of the things about mobile devices, about social media, about Netflix, it's stimulating. So their brains are firing. They might not be firing in the way that you always want them to be, but it's stimulating. They're engaged. And so we do have a responsibility to teach people how to be engaged of their own making, you know, how to really spark. We call it intellectual curiosity here. We're always talking about the how often are you asking a question and then genuinely looking for the answer? Encouraging reading is really, really important from a really early age. And encouraging reading of actual books, not just on, I have no problem with Kindles and other um, electronic reading devices, but there's something really nice about just having a book and having a page in front of you and you can't scroll away from it. It's there. There's a place for teaching people how to manage their own thoughts and minds. But equally, I think one of the exciting things about the age we live in, the technological age, is that it does capitalize on the way adolescent brains work. And they are easily distracted, but they're really good at doing lots of stuff at once. And actually, if we want them to go out and be really creative engineers and really great you know, coders and really inventive entrepreneurs, 
we need people who can think on lots of different levels and coming up with ideas and we'll test things. Because that's one of the things about the digital world is it's low risk. You can try something out and if it fails, you just delete and start over. And I think that we have the opportunity to capitalize on some of these traits and attributes that are enhanced through social media and through digital technology to encourage positive risk-taking, to encourage taking a left-hand turn when it's unexpected. That's how we get some of the the really exciting ideas that, that pop up every generation. Girls' schools also had a stigma around exam anxiety, that the girls either put themselves under too much pressure or you feel that being in an all-girls school, that they are highly competitive to get really great grades. How do you respond to that and how do you prepare these young women and their parents to be able to cope with this exam anxiety? Well, like I said, I've worked in girls' schools, boys' schools, and co-ed, and young people are nervous about exams. It's high stakes. It's high risk. And that's a whole nother conversation as to whether or not that's a reasonable way to put young people through school. But I think that it's not limited to girls' schools. I think young people put themselves under enormous pressure because examinations are the first time in their lives when they're doing something that's really high stakes that the outcomes will impact on them literally for the rest of their lives. These are things that they will carry around with them. It's reasonable for that to be the case because of the emphasis as a society we put on these exams. So I wouldn't pigeonhole girls. I think that girls are more likely to talk about it um, than boys are. That's a sweeping statement. I think that this goes back to, I don't think it's the girls or the boys. I think it's the parents and the teachers. I think we expect girls to be more anxious and we expect them to crumple. Also, um, they're more likely to cry when they're anxious. And that's a visual representation of distress that as caring adults really struggle to cope with. And so we work really hard to try to eliminate that with girls, whereas boys internalize, might internalize things more. I think that we need to work harder to like help young people keep things like exams in context and to be proportionate about the way they feel about them and to embrace the idea of liminality, this idea that once you've done everything you can do, there comes a point where you can't do any more and it's out of your hands and you just have to go with that. Um, and there will be points in their life where that's true. You know, you, you submit a job application and then it's out of your hands. There's no more you can do about it. As long as there are exams, there will be exam anxiety to varying extents. We just need to help young people. We talked a lot around self-care, about resilience, about making sure that not just girls, and I do like the way that you frame everything to do with it's girls, it's boys, it's co-ed. It doesn't matter what it is. All young people suffer from the same level of anxiety. They all need the same resilience. What are the long-term risks of sending students out into the world without this ever adequate preparation? The risk is that they can't cope and that they're unhappy. And I don't mean unhappy as in they're not gloriously happy all the time. I mean, they're unhappy in themselves. They're not confident. They don't feel able to access opportunities that come their way. They don't see opportunities and they're not living the very best life they could live. And that would be a great disservice because everyone deserves to, to have access to the best possible life. And so I think that not providing young people with the resilience to do that, it would be a huge omission on the part of parents and schools. And I think that there is a a tendency among parents and, and teaching staff to just try to remove obstacles and remove barriers so that young people have smooth sailing. And what you end up with is young people getting to the age of 18 and the very first time they experience failure is when they don't pass the driving test. 
And I have seen people absolutely lose it, go into meltdown over failing a driving test, which you know they can redo in three weeks' time. I think that we have to allow people to fail. We have to allow young people to experience the ups and downs of normal life. And we have to help them manage that. And we have to help them recognize when things are beyond their control, when they need help, and when they need to be liminal. And that's really tough. And it's more and more schools' jobs are getting bigger and bigger. Used to be, we just taught them subjects and sent them out into the world. And now we're providing a lot more wraparound support. In the end, it's in order to ensure that they are out there being happy, resilient, productive, confident adults who can go and lead real lives of consequence that they're proud of. It was fantastic to speak to you. Thank you so much, Amber, for finding the time. Please keep carrying that torch on the issues that you do talk so passionately about. I think it's long overdue some of the areas and topics that you shine a light on. Thank you for finding the time. You can connect with me on Twitter, Instagram and via LinkedIn. Remember, keep inspiring schools. We need more future school thinking now.